So as we begin today, I wonder how, if someone was trying to find out what was important to you, what would they do? What, what aspects of life would they look at? They might look at your use of money. They might look at how you spend what you get, whether that be little or a lot. They might look at your use of resources, so how you use your home, how you use your car, do you offer friends rides or things like that. They might look at what we talk about. What are the subjects that we would discuss at work or, or at home with our kids, with our friends? They might also look at what we get excited about. Now, I know Pastor Anthony gets very excited about Tottenham Hotspur, uh, his favorite football team. He gets very excited about that. But that's not his only topic of discussion. But I think the most telling, I think the thing which shows the most um, importance in our lives, the priority in our lives, is how we use our time. How we use our time. Uh, and as Jen read in, in Ephesians 5, verse 16, we're told that we need to be careful how we use our time, that we need to use our time well, we need to guard it, and we, we need to make the most of this time, because we have such a small amount of it on this earth preparing for eternity. And we know that as Christians, there are spiritual disciplines that we should spend our time in, uh, reading the Word, studying the Word, spending time with other Christians. Uh, coming to church, being part of Bible studies, praise and worship. But the thing I want to talk to you today uh, about is prayer. Is prayer. Now, I'm not going to share stories with you of Puritans who got up at 3 a.m. and prayed for four hours. uh, Because really, honestly, it makes me feel adequate. It makes us all feel really inadequate. Some of us, uh, most of us, don't have that that ability to do that. If I asked my wife to get up at 3 a.m., she'd probably beat me up rather than than want to get up and pray. It's hard when we hear these stories. But wherever we're at today, without a doubt, no matter if you're a brand new Christian or whether you've been a Christian for 50 years, our prayer lives can improve. If we pray five minutes a day, we can pray seven. If we pray 15, we can pray 20. No matter where we're at today, we can improve we can grow and today's church unfortunately has been convinced by the world that prayer like preaching is outdated that it's something that we don't need it's something that's not relevant or important it's almost it's seen as something passive as almost cliche when you say that i'm going to pray for you and someone's struggling it's like yeah but what what else are you going to do and we've been convinced or the church has been convinced by the world that this isn't worth our time and it's why prayer meetings across the world are so poorly, poorly attended. So I've been in churches in, in China, in Hong Kong. I've been in churches in, in the Middle East and, and, in, and in Europe. And across the world, the prayer meetings are poorly attended. And it's because when it comes to it, people are making choices that this isn't a priority. J.C. Ryle said that there is no part of religion that is so neglected as private prayer. Now, you might ask the question, why? Well, why is this? And and I think uh, it's because along with a lack of importance of prayer, I think we've lost, I think the church worldwide has lost its reverence for God. It's lost its fear of God. It's lost its respect of God. 
And actually, when you think about how many churches today, and you hear the stories, approach the Lord, it's often with almost a glib attitude. The book of Malachi is an indictment uh, upon um, Israel, uh, upon its leaders and upon its priests. Um, And they were called out by God for their lack of reverence and lack of respect for the Lord. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but Malachi 1 verse 6 Uh, God says this, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you. Can you imagine feeling that finger pointing if he was speaking to you there? O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? They were bringing lackluster worship to the eternal God, a God who deserves our first fruits, who deserves our best. In contrast to that attitude, if we think of Nehemiah, again, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but Nehemiah 8 um, and verse 6 says this, and we get a totally different attitude towards God and who he is. Nehemiah 8.6, and this is Ezra reading the law. I don't know if you've read this passage, but if you haven't read this passage, go home and read this chapter. It's, it's, it's just incredible. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. While lifting up their hands, they then bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is the correct posture towards God. Now, We know that we don't have to adopt a certain position in order to pray to God, right? We don't have to bow our faces low. What we know now is this is the posture that our heart has to adopt. Our heart has to bow low to God. And unless our heart does that, we are not going to pray. Unless our heart bows low, unless we are willing to submit ourselves to him, we are not going to want to pray. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says this, Uh, And God gives us another insight into why we maybe don't pray and to why we have this lack of reverence for him. He says, and if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. If my people will pray. A humble man is a man who will pray. A humble man or woman is a is a praying man or woman. Because we understand that we can't do anything without God. We don't have our own skills. We don't have our own knowledge and ability. We aren't able to save ourselves. We aren't able to do anything of value. I am not, I've said so many times, I cannot be a good dad without God. I just can't do it. We have to recognize, when we adopt this, uh, this is why humility is so important, because it recognizes that our strength comes from Him, and not from us. And if we go about our days not speaking to the Lord, not turning to Him in prayer, not humbling ourselves, then it's like we're saying, we can do this on our own. I taught in Hong Kong for nearly 10 years, and, and my principal at the school I taught, I would always say in devotions, If you can get up in the morning and not submit your day to the Lord, then it's like you're telling him, I've got this. I don't need help. I'll I'll check in when I need something. And I know that's not really what we mean, but it is essentially what we're saying. And again, it's not that we all have to get up at 4 a.m. But it's this idea that if we recognize who God is, that he is eternal, almighty God who created all things and sent Christ to save us, 
If that's his position, then our position is down here and we need to humble ourselves before him and come to prayer. So as we come to our text today, we must come with the understanding that prayer is vitally important for the Christian. And the amount of time and effort that we spend with the Lord matters. It shows our priorities. So please take your Bibles and let's turn to Colossians and chapter 4. And Colossians chapter 4 verses 2 to 4 are going to be our text today. Colossians chapter 4 verses 2 to 4. And it says this. Devote yourselves to prayer. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word. So that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. That I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. And I was just smiling through through the, the songs this morning because they were all so focused on Christ. And that is exactly what Colossians is. I noticed you studied Colossians back in 2017, so it's a while ago. Um, and, uh, and just to jog your memory, Colossians is about Christ. Paul, resoundingly throughout the book, is focusing on him and who he is, what he's done, and his incre- who, yeah, who he is. He is the image of the invisible God. And that's why those songs are so special leading us into this, because they focused so intentionally on the person of Christ. I just want to remind you, uh, mainly because it's one of my favorite sections, um, but if you want to flip back to Colossians 1, first of all, verse 13. And this really echoes Hebrews 1, if you remember. But this is this incomparable Christ, it's titled in my Bible, and it says this. And this gives us Paul's heart as we lead into our verse. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He starts with what Christ has done. And then he goes to who Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body. He's our head. He's the head of the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have the first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. And that bit echoes Hebrews 1, right? He's the image of the invisible God. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say whether things on earth or in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in the fleshly body through death. In order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. And Paul takes this theme on. Because of what Christ has done and who he is, he's going to try and make us more like him. And this is really where we come to this idea of prayer today. Paul was writing to the faithful Colossian church who were under attack, really. And what was happening was, um, in a word, syncretism. So they were taking, uh, well, Christianity was there, and they, we see at the beginning of Colossians 1 that they were faithful. They believed the true gospel. But error was coming in, 
And, and these little things were being drawn in and bolted on to Christianity. And Paul is warning them against this. They had been given the true gospel, but other things were coming in. Some believe that uh, one of the things that was coming in was a thing called Gnosticism, or the beginnings of it. And what that just meant was it was a heresy that said that there was a higher knowledge that you could achieve. You know, that us bog-standard Christians, we don't really get it. You've got to do a little bit extra. You know, you've got to have this experience, or you've got to do this over here, in order to attain this higher knowledge and become, you know, really spiritual. That sound like some things that we hear today. And we see it in, in chapter 2, verse 18, with, where Paul talks about the ideas of worship, of angels and visions. When promises of higher experiences and mystical spirituality are made, things like our Christian habits, devotion, daily prayer, things that are hard. Prayer is hard. Studying the God's word constantly, consistently and continually is hard. Those things don't look so attractive. They look more mundane. Not worthy of time. But Paul comments at the beginning of chapter 1 that he is spending his time in continual prayer for the Colossians. He's asking the Lord to grant wisdom and understanding to them so that they'll be able to walk worthy in the manner of the Lord. And Paul doesn't achieve this by mystical practices or experiences. He doesn't have some you know, thing, ritual he does that gives him some knowledge. He hasn't got the Urim and Thummim telling him what's going on. He hasn't got any of that. He's praying. And his method for helping the Colossians grow in their faith is prayer. Just like if you're a believer today, Christ is praying for you. He does this by praying for them. Prayer is his weapon of choice. And in James chapter 5, James tells us that the prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And Paul believed that. So when it comes to godly living and living this godly life and avoiding the distractions of whatever may pull us away, the lifeblood of the Christian's daily walk is prayer. Consistent communion with God, talking to him, bringing our concerns to him, asking him for help, sharing our worries, sharing our praises, thanking him, praising him, anything, speaking to him in that way and having a relationship with him, asking for guidance, interceding for others, any of these things. This is prayer, daily, devoted communion with our Father in heaven, through the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Prayer is, beyond question, the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest when he is on his knees, and he comes face to face with God. So that's a long way of introducing us to our passage. But in Colossians 4, verse 2 to 4, we see that Christians must be devoted to prayer so that the gospel will flourish. And we're given three kind of foci for our prayers. Three things that we see in this passage. That we must pray for ourselves, we must pray for others, and we must pray for outreach. And I know that sounds terribly simple, and it is, which is great. So first of all, verse 2, look at verse 2 with me, chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Anyone got an ESV? Yeah? Okay. So the ESV says continue steadfastly. And Paul begins this section with an imperative. So that means you must do it. He's not asking a question. He's not saying, hey, if you fancy it, or, you know, one day when you feel like praying. He says that this must happen. It's a command and an expectation. And prayer always has been for in the Christian life. And the ESV uses the word continue, which is actually closest, really, to, to the sense 
And it makes so much sense that Paul uses this word because he's saying that this has to continue, it has to carry on. Now, for something to continue, it has to have begun, right? So he's not saying, hey, if, if you one day do this, he's saying, hey, you're a Christian, so you should be praying. That means you need to continue doing it. It's an expectation. This is already happening and it will continue. And that challenges us right off the bat in the first two words. Is this a part of my life? Does this, does this describe me? Is this true of your life? Is prayer a constant companion? Do we view prayer as so serious a thing that we won't go through the day without doing it? Spurgeon referred to prayer as air and water, vital for life. Think about the, the beginning of Acts, Acts 1 verse 14. We're told that they devoted themselves to prayer, the, the, the early Christians and the apostles. So first off, as we start, if prayer is not a regular and central part of our walk, it needs to be. And the great thing about Paul is he's going to give us some tips on how to do that in just a bit. The imperative, though, is stronger than just continue. And that one Greek word there has, has a number of different translations or meanings that we can add to it that gives us a depth of meaning that goes far beyond just the continue. It could be translated to stick by, to attach oneself to, to persist, to devote, to be busily engaged with. We're not just continuing with a rigid habit. And this is why the NASB says, devote yourself to. Devote yourself to. Because what are the characteristics of devotion? It's daily, it's consistent, it's prioritized, it's non-negotiable. It means that prayer is never far from our thoughts or actions. And Paul, and Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1 of Colossians, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Prayer is from above. And when we pray to God, we remember we're not praying to a force in the room. We're praying to an eternal God in heaven who hears us and wants to hear from us and loves to hear from us. Paul makes it clear that prayer isn't a tack-on to the Christian life. It's something that we must be devoted to. But as I said, he gives us two practical helps. Okay, And this is a great thing about the way Paul writes. He gives us the theology, then he gives us the practical application. And he gives us two things here. And the first one is this. Devote yourselves to prayer, verse 2, keeping alert in it. Keeping alert in it. Otherwise translated, be watchful. Be watchful. So what does it mean? Paul uses this terminology throughout the New Testament. I'll just give you a couple of places. Romans 16, 17, he says, watch out. Be on the watch for those who cause divisions. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Galatians 6, 1, keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted, and the implication is to sin. 1 Timothy 4, 16, he tells Timothy to keep a close watch on his teaching. And as you probably know this verse so well, 1 Peter, Peter reiterates this in 1 Peter 5, 8, where he says, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. So many of the exhortations throughout the New Testament relate, uh, relating to watchfulness are talking about our personal holiness. They're talking about warding off the attacks of the enemy and making sure that error isn't allowed to creep in, in practice or in the teaching of the church. And that Greek word itself has this sense of, and, and the main sense of the word is eyes wide open, being awake, 
being alert. And, and this, this sense is reiterated in Ephesians 6, actually, first, verse 18. It says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We are to have our eyes wide open in this world. We are to be alert. And if we went back to the Old Testament, we could go to Proverbs 4, verse 23, which says, watch over your heart with all diligence. Watch over your heart. Now, we're told to watch over others, but we must take care of our own heart, our own soul, our own walk with the Lord. And that's part of what we should be praying for. Now, we have to remember at this point Paul's priorities, right? Christ is preeminent. Being watchful, that this doesn't change. He's speaking to the Colossians, who are having these outside influences, who are maybe dragging them away from the gospel. He's saying, be watchful that these strange teachings you're hearing are not going to pull you away, are not going to trick you. And if you just glance back to chapter 2, verse 8, you'll see that it says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition. That's today. This was written a couple of thousand years ago, but it's talking to us today. This is happening today, where the church is being led astray by human philosophy and human deceit and tradition. And it's happening under the nose of the church. We need to be praying about these things. Whole congregations, certainly I know in the UK, are reneging on core tenets of the gospel. They're allowing the world to influence what they believe and what they live. We can't do that. We can't be like that. And Paul calls out to them, Christ is preeminent. Don't change. Don't sacrifice what he has given you for something that's less, that's worth less, that's worse, worth less than nothing. It's like adding, when we add to Christ, when we add to the gospel, when we add to the Bible, or when we take away, it's like adding water, and I think you say cordial in America. We have squash. But um, I, I, think, I think you have the idea of cordial when you add water to it and it increases in volume. When you add too much water to cordial, all you get is water. You can't taste the cordial anymore. And that's the church. When we allow these things to come in, we can't see Christ anymore. We have to be watchful. So many are willing to debate online and spend hours on social media and and, and doing all of these things. But how much time are we praying? How much time are we bringing these things to the Lord? If these things that we're fighting for, for instance, social media is just one example, but various other platforms, if these things are so important, are we praying for these things? Matthew 26, uh, verse 40 to 41, Jesus says, He came to the disciples, remember they're in the garden, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you men couldn't keep watch with me one hour? Keep watching and what? Praying. That you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus isn't just talking about the guards coming in to take, take him away. Jesus is talking about, what because what will Peter do in a few hours? He'll deny him. Jesus says, strengthen yourself, Peter. Pray, because that's what's going to give you the strength to get through these temptations. And he's saying the same thing to us today. We have to be watchful in prayer for the sake of our spiritual walk, the walk of others and the church. But back to chapter 4, verse 2, he then gives us a next uh, practical help. Be watchful, keeping alert in it, 
with an attitude of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. We must be thankful. 1689 Baptist Confession says, Prayer with thanksgiving, being one special part of natural worship, is by God required of all men. So not only are we all required to pray, but we're all required to praise, to give thanks to the God who created us. This is part of God's nature, that he is due praise, but particularly thankfulness for all he does and is. Remember the focus of the book, the focus of Paul's life. What is he thankful for? He's thankful for Christ. He isn't just talking about being thankful for the daily things that we have, but the eternal things. Listen to what Paul's thankful for in chapter 1. He's thankful for his salvation. He's thankful for God's incredible grace and mercy to the sinner he is. He's thankful for God's long-suffering patience with humanity, that he doesn't destroy the world now, but in his common grace gives the world time to hear the call of the gospel. He's thankful for the glory of Christ and his omnipotent acts in creation of the cosmos, which we sang about today. He is thankful for the creation of the church, of which Christ is the head, and the fact that we are allowed to access him and access membership into Christ's body if we will just follow and accept him as Lord. Thanksgiving is seen repeatedly throughout this book. Chapter 1, verse 12, thanksgiving for qualification for our inheritance. Chapter 2, verse 7, he's overflowing with gratitude for being rooted and built up and established in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 15, fellowship with Christ in his church. And then chapter 3, verse 17, uh, giving thanks to him, to God the Father for whatever we do in word and deed. We have so much guys, to be thankful for. So much. Not just the daily things, but Paul talks about the eternal things that we need to be thankful for. So our prayer should be a response to Christ and who he is and what he's done, because we have so much to be thankful for. And this should be the source of joy in our lives. And I don't mean the, the emotional feeling joy. You know, James talks about having joy in suffering, right? And that, that's the passage that we all kind of scratch our head and look at and go, how does that work? How do I have joy in suffering? He's not talking about an emotional reaction. He's not talking about us going, hey, suffering's coming, fantastic. That's not the impression. He's talking about a deep, consistent joy that is within us that is based upon the fact that we're in God's family, that we've been adopted by him, that we are one with Christ. That nothing can take that away. That no matter what we're going through, that we can look back to that and know that God eternal is for us. So who can be against us? That's the kind of joy he's talking about. That should fuel our prayers. So, I know that was a long section. But if we focus, if we struggle with prayer, particularly praying for ourselves, we can see here some guidance from Paul as to how to pray. Devote ourselves to it. Be watchful in it, be watchful over our own lives, and give thanks. Now, if you are here today and you do struggle with prayer, let me give you a word of encouragement. If we struggle with prayer, we can do as Spurgeon says. And Spurgeon says this, Prayer itself is an art which only the Holy Ghost can teach us. He is the giver of all prayer. And this is the help. He says, pray for prayer. Pray till you can pray. Pray for prayer. Pray till you can pray. So if you struggle with it, we've got to get down on our knees and say, Lord, I'm struggling with prayer. Help me pray. And he will. It takes 
blood, sweat and tears sometimes. But he will. Okay. Verse 3. You'll be grateful to know. We, look, we move on and we look at the next thing. So we must pray for ourselves, but we must also pray for others. Uh, and you'll see there, devote, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well. And that us could refer to uh, Paul and all his compatriots, you know, Aristarchus and, and all of those guys who are with him mentioned in chapter 4. It, it could just mean um, those contending for the gospel, those who are, who, are, who are ministering with Paul or those in general, Christians in general. But Paul clearly has his own ministry in mind as well. He says, pray for me. And we can see that because later on he says um, in verse 3, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. He switches from the plural to the singular, and he's talking about himself. And this is a challenge to us. Paul, super missionary Paul, asked for prayer. How often have we been so proud that we aren't willing to come to people around us and say, I'm struggling. I need prayer. I need help. What a farce in the church that that we have to pretend that everything's okay all the time. That's a load in English vernacular, a load of rubbish. Because it's not. We're not okay all the time. We do struggle. We do have difficult times. We do need help. And Paul, super missionary Paul, needed, if you read through his letters, how many times did he ask people to pray for him? He wasn't ashamed of saying, you know what, I'm struggling and I need your help in ministry. So that means we need to be praying for those who are in ministry, who are on the front lines. This is kind of the first point of this section. Pray for those who are on the front lines. And specifically for you, that's Pastor Anthony. That's the, the, the I, I don't know the rest of, of your church, I'm very, but I guess Michael and, and the guys who lead your church, pray for them. How often are you praying for, for Pastor Anthony's ministry, for his faithfulness, for his health? For his understanding and knowledge of the word, for Jen and the children, his finances, his spiritual walk, and, and his holiness. He needs your prayers. He needs your support. Missionaries you support, people on the field, people maybe in LA or, or various other places, they need your prayers. Maybe you guys are in secular jobs and you're witnessing to people in those secular jobs. You need prayer. We need to, your church needs to know about that and be praying for that. Jesus the same imperative for prayer along with Paul's, which cements our need for prayer for gospel workers in Matthew 9. Uh, and if you remember it, I'll just read it to you. Uh, sorry. Matthew 9 uh, and verse 37 to 38 says this. It would help if I was on the right page. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. That beseech, how do we beseech the Lord? We pray. We ask the Lord to send out workers into the harvest. Paul doesn't ask for release from chains. He doesn't ask for an easier ride of things. He asks for help with the proclamation of the gospel, which we'll come to in a minute. The last little bit of this so we, we need to pray for others, and we need to pray for those who are on the front lines. And, and in general, we need to pray for other believers. We're reminded again of Ephesians 6.18 we read earlier, and Paul's call to make supplication for all the saints. We are to pray for one another. And you know, James um, chooses kind of this focus to close 
his book uh, in chapter 5. James 5, he says, Is any of you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He has to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So it seems here that there's a lot to be praying for, for ourselves, for each other. But it's easy for us to get lost in those prayers for ourselves and and for each other as well, and and prayers for our worldly concerns. And as we come to the end of of chapter 3 and into uh, verse 3 and into verse 4, we see Paul's final exhortation here. And really, this is where everything is leading up to. He says we must pray for opportunities. We must pray for opportunities. This is the modifier on what he said before. Pray for yourself, pray for others, but pray for opportunities. Look at that with me in Colossians 4, uh, verses, second part of verse 3. That God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way... I ought to speak. Open a door. That's vernacular we understand, isn't it? The idea of, of an open door referring to an opportunity, right? Um, and back in Acts 14, 24, when Paul and Barnabas go to Antioch, they tell the guys there how the Lord opened doors for the faith of the Gentiles. It's a common phrase, and it, I guess it meant the same thing that it does today. It's opportunities. But opportunities for what? Opportunities for what? The mystery of Christ and the word. And you would think from what I said at the beginning, with all the syncretistic stuff that's going on, maybe some of this Gnostic stuff, why does, God, why does Paul use the word mystery? It seem, seems like that would confuse people. Hey, you just told us we don't need all this mystery stuff, and now using the word mystery. But I think Paul used the word to differentiate between the true gospel and all this pseudo-spiritual mystical practices. Because the reality is, is that the mystery he's talking about is no longer a mystery. Dr. MacArthur talks about the mystery being something hidden in the Old Testament, but revealed in the New. It's been revealed. Flick back to two, uh, Colossians 2 verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance and understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ. If I have a full knowledge of understanding, it's no longer a mystery, right? And then 1 Timothy 3.16 adds to this. And listen how he closes this chapter. 1 Timothy 3.16. By common confession... Great is the mystery of godliness, who was revealed in the flesh, who was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Christ is that mystery that was once hidden, but is now revealed to us. There's nothing hidden anymore. There's nothing mystical about Christianity. There's no special rituals to follow. No acts to do. Salvation is all in the open. And this is what we must believe. The gospel. That God eternal. Before all things was existent. In relationship with himself in the Godhead. Father, Son, Spirit. Created the world out of nothing. Created matter and time and space out of nothing. He created this world and put us here as his subjects. 
And we rejected that rule. We chose sin instead, and sin needed dealing with. As Romans tells us, the punishment for that is death. So in order to pay that price, he sent Christ, his son, as it said in, in the new verse of uh, before the throne of God above, he bowed low. I love that phrase. He bowed low. He, came, he became a human. How grotty and horrible must that have been coming from heaven? Christ came and became 100% God and 100% man and lived a perfect life, something no other man could do. And he did that with the purpose of dying for us, for those people who put him on that cross, who caused him shame and pain. But as no other man could do, he rose again and he paid the price for death. He defeated death. He ascended into glory and one day he'll come again. We need this, Jesus. We don't need some fake. Christianity isn't a mystery religion. It's a revealed relationship with Jesus. And Paul is saying in all of this, the priority of his prayer is that the gospel is preached. And that it's preached, declared clearly the way it ought to be done. And there, um, in verse 4, your Bible may say, my NASB says that I may make it clear. Um, And that that Greek word uh, really is the idea of making manifest, of revealing. And that ties straight back to the idea of the mystery. It's a mystery made manifest. Jesus was made manifest as a man. He was revealed. This is no longer a mystery anymore. So Paul is asking for prayer that we would pray that the gospel would be proclaimed clearly. That people would hear it and see it. The gospel must be declared clearly. And that should be our ultimate prayer. That should be our concern for ourselves and the defense of the truth. In the watchfulness and our thanksgiving, the gospel must be central. We must be watchful in our prayers for the truth of the gospel to be proclaimed clearly. We must be thankful in our prayers for the gospel being preached to us and the work of the Holy Spirit renewing our minds and bringing dead souls to life. Do we desire this closeness with God? Where we can have a conversation with Him, where we can bring our thoughts to Him, concerns, praises, desires. First, we need a relationship with Him. We need to stop being His enemies, as Romans 5 says. My son Seth, he's my oldest, he's nine. He can come to me anytime because he's my son. Now, other people may not have access to me at certain times, but he does because he's my boy. That's the same with Christ. We have access to, to the Son. We have access to the Father through the Son. We have constant access to God eternal. And this is why prayer is so special and why it's so detrimental to us when we don't use it, when we don't talk to him. There are earthly things that get in the way of my son coming to me when I'm at work. You know, if he's at school or playing with his friends, he can't necessarily come to me right there and then. But we don't have those barriers with Christ. We can talk to him anywhere. So the question as we close is this. Where are you today? I don't know any of you, except Jen. I don't know any of you. So if you're a non-Christian today, you need to know this Jesus that Paul talks about in Colossians. You need to talk to Michael. Phil, I'll be here at the front. I'd love to talk with any of you afterwards if you have questions or thoughts or, um, or anything. But you need to talk to someone if you, if you don't know Christ today, if you haven't given your life to him. But if you are a Christian, 
Where is your prayer life today? Where are you at? And it's a question that we all need to ask ourselves. And the problem with preaching is you have to ask yourself these questions first and then stand up and talk to people and realize, I don't have it all sorted either. So we all have to ask us these questions. Are we devoted to daily, steadfast, prioritized prayer? I really hope that we are. And regardless of where we're at in all of this, regardless of where you're at today, do something about it. We have to do something about it. Although the Spirit helps us, we have to get up the gumption to pray, to talk to Him. I'd like to close with an un... Uh, we don't know who the author is of this, this poem, but I, I, I love it. I got up one morning and I rushed into the day. I had so much to accomplish, I didn't have time to pray. Problems just tumbled about me and heavier came each task. Why doesn't God help me, I wondered. He answered, you didn't ask. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day toiled on gray and bleak. I wondered why God didn't show me, and he said, but you didn't seek. I tried to come into God's presence. I used all my keys in the lock, and God gently and lovingly chided me. My child, you didn't knock. I woke up early this morning and paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to take time to pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your Son and your Spirit. We thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the book of Colossians and and how it points us back to Jesus and how he is the preeminent one. He is the source of all good and the the only source of salvation. Thank you, Lord, for these reminders today. Lord, I thank you that you give us the gift of prayer, something that we don't often treat as a gift. Help us to use this gift. Help us to cherish this gift. Help it to be more and more a part of our lives. That we may just desire to speak with you continually. That we would remember to pray for others. That we would remember to pray for ourselves and be on watch. But that we would also remember to pray for your gospel to go out here from this church, in this community, in LA, in the world. May we pray for all of these things that you've commanded us. Thank you, Lord, for your son. And it's in his name we pray all of this. Amen.